Hello, friends, and welcome to Worldwide Crime. I'm Eric, as always, and I'm joined with my co-host, Erica. Hurry up. What? I said, hurry up. You left us on a cliffhanger last time, so get on with it. Fear not, my uncouth companion. You will have the green light to let go of the cliff after this one. I'm not uncouth. In what universe are you not? I just do what you made me to do. If I'm uncouth, it's your fault. Well, do you need me to elaborate? No. Last week we covered Kemper's co-ed victims. This week, we find out what Big Ed has in store for his mom. That's assuming no one used a simple internet search to find out. Let's assume they didn't. They likely did. Like all of our episodes, this one will contain violence, sex, and the use of foul language, so listeners are strongly cautioned. This one's pretty bad, guys. You need to work on your cussing. You sound like a teenager that just discovered it. Me? Well, that's rich coming from you. Again, you made me. Let's... let's just continue the story. Finally. On April 20th, 1973, Ed came home one evening. He walked towards his mother's bedroom. He saw 52-year-old Clarnell lying on her bed reading a book. She noticed Ed peeking at her through the gap left between the nearly closed door and the door jamb. She pulled her attention away from the paperback in her hand and said to Ed, quote, I suppose you're going to want to stay up and talk all night, end quote. Ed told her no, and then he would talk to her in the morning. He then turned around and went to his bedroom. He closed the door, sat on his bed, and continued seeing the internal war that had been destroying his mind. We all have an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, arguing to convince you what you should do when presented with various decisions. For Ed, this battle would consume him to the point of insanity. He felt as though he was nothing more than an innocent onlooker while this war was being fought. Ed would spend the next hour in his room smoking cigarettes and listening to each side state their case. And unfortunately for Clarnell, the devil won. After making his mind up, Ed went to the kitchen where he gathered a knife and a claw hammer. With one item in each hand, he slowly walked towards Clarnell's room. After reaching the bedroom door, Edley slowly and quietly opened it enough for his massive frame to fit. He silently walked to the edge of Clarnell's bed, where she lay sleeping, and stared at her. Ed's heart was pounding with agitated excitement. This had been a dark fantasy of his for most of his life, yet he still struggled to go through with it. It seems the angel had commenced a counteroffensive. Although it only lasted mere moments, the devil regained control. Ed lifted the claw hammer above his head, ready to strike. Ed, now understanding that with this, his reign of terror on innocent lives would come to an end. Ed would bring the hammer down upon his mother's head with brute force. He would beat her to death while she slept. After Ed felt certain that Clarnell was no longer living, he stood straight up and took pause. That go down about how you expected it to? Not really. The way you've been touting it, I figured it would be more brutal. That wasn't brutal enough? It's not that. She was sleeping. She likely felt no pain. With all the years of building towards this, I just figured it would be a more unexpected and stomach-turning crescendo. Not to say that wasn't horrible. I just expected more. I feel awful saying that, but yeah, I hope that makes sense. No, I get it. But he's not done with her yet. Oh God. He was covered in his mother's blood, as was the wall behind her, and the bed where she took her last breath. Ed stood there, 
in anticipation of feeling an overwhelming relief. It's finally over, Ed thought to himself. That feeling Ed was so anxious to consume him never came. Ed was now in a fit of rage. How could this woman that tormented me for all of my life still rob me of any feeling of joy or relief after death? He had to find a way of making her stop tormenting him. He then took the razor-sharp kitchen knife and put it to Clarnell's throat. Ed cut her throat with such force that the blade nearly went through her spine, decapitating her completely. Ed understood he was not completely blameless in this. He hated her and was overwhelmed by how this could have all been avoided if she would have just loved him if she allowed Ed to love her. Ed could still hear what his mother had been saying to him his entire life, as though she were still there, speaking, demeaning him, emasculating him, blaming him. Ed took the knife and cut Clarnell's tongue from her mouth, along with her vocal cords. Her words still piercing his mind, he stuffed the detached tongue and larynx in the kitchen's garbage disposal and flipped the wall switch that powered it on. The disposal would not grind these parts as Ed intended. Instead, it spit them back into the sink. This was ironic to Ed. Even in death, she wouldn't shut up. Good lord. I wonder if he would have actually put in the work while in therapy instead of gaming the system, if things would have been different. In a different setting, perhaps. But as a 15-year-old in a Tescadero, anything he learned in therapy would have been tossed right out the window. He spent what? Maybe like an hour a day in therapy? The rest of the time he was surrounded by sick adults, like the sickest of the sick. That's sad. This whole thing is. I know. And he's still not done with Clarnell yet. Dude. Ed felt this was justice for what Clarnell had caused him to become. However, Ed was not satisfied with this punishment. It wasn't enough. He powered off the garbage disposal and headed back towards Clarnell's bedroom. Once inside, Ed retrieved his mother's severed head. He then unbuttoned and unzipped his pants, pulled them down. In an act of irrimatio, he inserted his penis in the Clarnell's mouth and raped her head until he reached climax. Ed then placed his mother's head on a shelf in the living room. He screamed at her lifeless head for hours. He threw darts at it. He would eventually hit the lifeless head with such force, Clarnell's face would collapse into itself. Ed later recalled he screamed at her for so long and so loudly that his voice went painfully hoarse, and he nearly collapsed from exhaustion. This is too much. So gross. This is fucked up on a level I didn't know existed. What the hell is Irimatio anyway? There's no real way to describe it delicately, so I'll put it into terms even I can understand. Um, well, it's a, uh, it's a forced mouth hug. Are you fucking kidding me right now? Uh, no. You are correct in stating there isn't a delicate way to describe it, but a forced mouth hug. That's juvenile, stupid, offensive, and a bunch of other adjectives I can't think of at the moment. To be fair, I did say in terms even I can understand. I loathe you. I know. He had finally done it. He had removed the one person that had caused him so much pain throughout his life. He had killed the one part of him that caused him to hurt other people. Ed began coming down from this emotional state, and logic began to settle in. He needed a moment. He needed some time to think, to reflect on what he had done, and what was to come next. Ed left the house, climbed into his car, and started driving. 
He had no specific destination. He just drove. At one point, he stopped at a store and bought beer. Ed wanted to get drunk, and he did. Ed returned home, still exhausted and intoxicated. He went to his bedroom and collapsed onto his bed and slept. The story he told at his parole hearing in 2017 was completely different than the one he told police after his arrest in 1973. Ed woke up the next morning and decided he had to kill one more person in an act of self-preservation. That person would be Clarnell's best friend and colleague at UCSC, 59-year-old Sarah Taylor Hallett. She went by Sally, so that's how she'll be referred to for the rest of the story. Ed spent the most of that day drinking and trying to clean the carnage she left in Clarnell's bedroom. He placed his mother's remains in the bedroom closet. Evening rolled around, and he decided that if Sally were to die, then he could explain their absence away. He planned to tell anyone that asked that they had gone on a trip to Europe together, and if the bodies were ever discovered, then he hoped it would pull focus from him as a person of interest or a suspect. He called Sally at home, but no one answered. He was contemplating other strategies to get away with all he had done when around 5 p.m. the phone rang. It was Sally asking to speak with Clarnell. Ed told her that Clarnell wasn't home, but he wanted to surprise her by taking them both to dinner. Sally loved the idea. She got ready, then headed over to Clarnell's apartment. Ed was sitting and waiting for Sally's arrival when the doorbell rang. He opened the door to Sally smiling and offering pleasantries. He invited her in. Sally walked inside and Ed closed the door. He walked up behind her, wrapped his arm around her throat, and squeezed. He lifted her off the ground as though she weighed nothing. Ed would recall holding Sally in this position for at least a minute, not knowing he had broken her neck as soon as he had lifted her. He recounted that as he held her off the ground, it felt as though skin was the only thing keeping her head attached to her body. Ed then carried Sally's lifeless body to his bedroom, laid her on the bed, then stripped her of all of her clothing. During the night, Ed was lying in bed next to Sally's corpse, and he would rape her. The next morning came. It was now Easter Sunday. Ed climbed out of bed and got dressed. He took Sally's car keys from her purse and started driving east. Ed claimed he drove for 28 hours straight, only stopping for gas and no-dose, which is an energy supplement. He, at some point, left Sally's car at a repair shop along the way and rented a different vehicle. He continued driving east. He was amazed that he hadn't heard anything on the news about bodies discovered in Aptos, California, where his mother's house is located. At the point of total exhaustion, near collapse, he finally pulled over by a payphone in Pueblo, Colorado. He mustered the energy to climb out of the car and walk over to the phone. He picked up the receiver and called the Santa Clara Police Department to confess. Like what was said before, many of these officers considered Ed to be a friend. It would take multiple attempts to finally be taken seriously. None of the officers he talked to believed him. Ed shared a few details about the co-ed killer's case that only the killer and the police would know. The co-ed killer is what the media had started calling Ed. Ed's audience became attentive when he told Officer Connor over the phone to get a hold of Mickey, because Mickey knew where Ed lived. Nothing to add? I mean, 
You just killed another person. Nope. I'm not talking to you. I'm pissed. I'm sorry you're angry, but you shouldn't be surprised by anything I say or do by now. Fuck you. Really? Just gonna be quiet for the rest of the episode then. Okay. I'll let the story go for a bit, but you need to calm down. Don't fucking tell me to calm down. Wow. You really are triggered. I'm sorry. Go to hell. Okay, geez. I'll let you be. Mickey received the call at his home on April 24th at 5.20 in the morning. Mickey recalled feeling as though all the blood ran from his body as Connor was relaying to him what Ed had said. Mickey got dressed and headed over to Ed's address. He and the police sergeant began canvassing the area. Mickey would eventually speak to neighbors that lived in the apartment directly above Ed's. They complained of an odor that seemed to be coming from downstairs in Ed's apartment. With Ed's confession and the reported smell, Mickey now had what he saw as probable cause to make entry into Ed's home. Mickey knocked on the front door. No one was answering. So Mickey and the sergeant made their way to the rear of the complex and broke a back window, leading them inside. After the two investigators were inside the apartment, they were hit with a foul smell. A smell that any investigator involved in homicide cases knows all too well. Mickey and the sergeant began a cursory search of the premises. As they made their way to Clarnell's bedroom, Mickey opened the closet door and found a sheet covering something. As Mickey pulled the sheet from the mass it covered, what was underneath started to become clear. With every inch the sheet moved from the mass underneath revealed more and more of the horror Ed had left. Mickey called the forensics unit. When they arrived, they pulled Clarnell's bed from the wall behind it and found thick, caked-on blood that spanned from the height of the pillows on the bed to a massive pool on the floor. Lying in this pool of blood, investigators found a note. This note was from Ed, directed towards the police. It reads as follows. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. Got things to do. Approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, no pain, the way I wanted it. As investigators continued, police started pulling items from the closets throughout the apartment. Among these items were shoeboxes that housed various body parts, hands, feet, arms, and legs. Paul Doherty, the chief criminologist at the time, lifted a towel that was clearly covering a round-shaped mass. To his horror, it was Clarnell's severed head, and her caved face was looking directly at him as the towel lifted. Next, police would find hidden in the closet by the front door Clarnell's best friend, Sally. Investigators also recovered items from Ed's other victims. Blood-stained ladies' underwear, IDs, pictures, jewelry hairbrushes, and the like. Any doubt police had about Ed's involvement was extinguished that day. Local authorities in Pueblo rolled to Ed's location in force. Ed, sitting in the rental car, smoking a cigarette, was barely conscious, fighting off fatigue, when he saw a dozen police cruisers surround him with sirens blaring and lights flashing. He followed the officer's demands and was placed under arrest. They now had overwhelming evidence that Ed Kemper is the co-ed killer, and his arrest was peaceful. 
The district attorney in Santa Cruz, Peter Chang, asked Mickey if he had any rapport with Kemper. Mickey said that he thought so. Chang told him to pack a bag because they were headed to Colorado. Once Mickey and Chang touched down, they immediately went to check in with the Pueblo Police Department. Mickey and D.A. Chang were led to an interrogation room where they sat down at a table. Not long after, in walks Ed. As Ed was sitting down at the table opposite Mickey and Chang, he said, Hey Mickey, how you doing? Over the next six hours, Ed would go on to share a detailed confession that none of the officers that knew him could believe. To them, Big Ed, as he was known to officers that frequented the jury room, was a gentle giant. Ed told them the location of dump sites he had left the bodies, among other shocking detail about the crimes. The next week, Ed was transported back to California. During the drive back, Mickey recalled Ed needing to use the restroom. Due to the notoriety of this case, Ed was quickly recognized by patrons of the gas station at which the three of them had stopped. A crowd formed around Ed, and he seemed to love it. Mickey would go on to say Ed would strut back and forth so all these people could get a good look at him. After safely arriving back to Santa Cruz, Ed was placed in jail. Authorities now needed to find Ed's other victims. Ed did provide a location, but it wasn't sufficient given the lack of landmarks in the mountains. Ed was asked if he would be willing to go to the dump sites with police. They needed Ed to point out the locations personally. Ed agreed to do it because he wanted the families to have closure. Terry Medina of the Santa Cruz Sheriff's Department recalls finding a human arm. The arm was determined to belong to Aikoku. Aiko's childhood friend, Hazel, finally found out what happened to Aiko through an article in the newspaper. For the first time, Hazel laid eyes on a picture of the man that had robbed her friend Aiko of her life. Hazel was understandably devastated. Cynthia's shawl's head was recovered from the hole Ed left it in below his mother's bedroom window. Mickey would ask Ed why he left Cynthia's head in that manner. Ed went on to tell Mickey that he had removed Cynthia's face from her skull, buried the skull, then laid the face on the ground on top of the dirt Ed used to bury her head. Ed wanted her to always be looking up at him. As more bodies were discovered with Ed's help, officers were left to live the rest of their lives with the images of the unbelievable horror Kemper had visited upon these innocent young lives. On October 23, 1973, Ed's trial began. In the packed courtroom, locals would yell, Kill that bastard! Rotten hell! And the like. Ed's guilt was all too clear, but his sanity was still in question. Ed's defense team would argue that Kemper was insane, and he did not know what he was doing during the murders. Trying to prove Ed had mental health issues was the only defense they had to go on. Ed's defense team asked Donald T. Lundy to assess Ed's mental state. Dr. Lundy would have several recorded sessions with Kemper. He wanted to understand Ed's past, his family dynamic, his motivations for committing these crimes. Ed seemed as though he was an open book, sharing insights and occurrences that led to the perpetration of these killings. Dr. Lundy felt as though Ed was telling him the truth but he wanted to see if there was anything deeper he could find. Anything that Ed may have unknowingly suppressed. 
Dr. Lundy decided the best way to uncover this information would be sodium amytal, or truth serum, as it's known in some circles. Dr. Lundy wanted to uncover Ed's subconscious. Ed was willing to submit to this. While under the influence of this drug, Ed revealed that not only did he kill, rape, and dismember his victims, but he also ate them. Anything? Nothing to add about his cannibalism. No? All right. Chunks of meat he would carve from their thighs. Ed believed that if he ate pieces of his victims, they would always be a part of him, and their spirit would live on through him. Cannibalism has a history with some cultures. In Papua New Guinea, tribal members that passed away would be consumed by the village as an act of love and respect. They did not want the body of their tribal member to rot or be consumed by insects. The Wari of the Brazilian Amazon also participated in this ritual until missionaries precipitated its end in the 1960s. The Aztecs would consume the bodies of those sacrificed to the gods. There is also the motivation of consuming your dead enemies as an ultimate act of revenge. During World War II, the Japanese would eat the bodies of prisoners of war, believing that they would inherit the strength of their vanquished enemies. Medicinal purposes of cannibalism were practiced by some cultures throughout history to cure ailments such as dysentery and epilepsy. While under the influence of this barbiturate, Ed recalled that in taking pictures of Aikoku, he could satisfy the urge to kill by revisiting the photographs. He sounded remorseful in describing that Aiko had a future with dance, and he robbed her of it due to his fear of her sharing what Ed had done to her prior to her death. Ed claimed that he never wanted to hurt Aiko, but he had committed himself, and he had created strict rules and had to adhere to them. He would go on to say that Aiko was the only one that he truly didn't want to hurt because she was so sweet, kind, innocent. Ed's case was bizarre in that he was remorseful, but in the same breath claimed he couldn't help himself. Ed's cannibalism was another act he used to satisfy his urge to kill. He claimed hopes that it brought back feelings and thoughts that were erotic enough to stave off his urges. It came time for Dr. Lundy to prepare his report for Kemper's defense team. He was torn. Ed displayed the ability to cover up his crimes. Kemper created plans to commit his crimes. This heavily lends to Ed's knowing what he was doing, and there was no evidence of spontaneity in the crimes. Legally speaking, Ed was sane. From a psychological perspective, Dr. Lundy found Ed to be insane. In 1851, the U.S. court system adopted the McNaughton Rule, and it reads as follows, that every man is to be presumed to be sane, and that to establish a defense on the ground of insanity, it must be clearly proved that, at the time of committing the act, the party accused was laboring under such a defect of reason from disease of mind as not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing, or if he did know it, that he did not know he was doing what was wrong. Kemper would be deemed sane by courts on November 8, 1973. He was convicted on eight counts of first-degree murder. The judge would ask Ed what his punishment should be. Ed would say he should be tortured to death. He was instead sentenced to seven years to life on all eight counts. These sentences were to run concurrently, 
meaning all eight sentences were to be served at the same time. Some found this to be relaxed punishment given the brutality of Kemper's crimes. Ed would spend time on the same block in the California medical facility with notorious monsters such as Charles Manson and Herbert Mullen. While incarcerated, Ed was described as a model inmate. Ed volunteered to help other prisoners schedule and keep appointments with their psychologists and psychiatrists. He became talented in crafting ceramic cups. Ed also spent over 5,000 hours voicing audiobooks for the blind. Everywhere from children's books to Star Wars. Most notably, Kemper was instrumental in the success of the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit and their profiling of serial killers. Okay, just real quick. If you haven't seen Mindhunters on Netflix, it's a must-watch, in my opinion. The cat they got to play Kemper was nothing short of phenomenal. It's a shame I don't have a co-host to discuss it with further. Dot, dot, dot. Still nothing? Okay, seriously, I'm sorry. I didn't want to offend you or anyone else. You make it a point to call out my deficiencies as a human being. I like to think they're all in jest, but maybe they're not. They're not, you rotten fucker. She speaks. I'm glad you're back. I truly am. You're awesome. Kissing my ass won't help your case. I know, and I'm not. I really, really mean that. There's no way to describe this delicately, so I'm going to put this in terms even you can understand. I don't like you, and you need to fuck off. Alrighty, still cooling off. Got it. John Douglas recounted in his 1995 book, Mindhunter, that Ed loved to talk and would at great length. He has an IQ of 145 and offered detailed insight in how killers think. These practices are still widely used in law enforcement today. Ed would go on to have multiple interviews with journalists, law enforcement, and religious figures. Even with being a model prisoner and the volunteer work Ed engaged in, he was either denied or waived parole multiple times. In 2015, all of Ed's work in the prison would come to an end after suffering a massive stroke. He would be declared medically disabled. In 2017, Ed was denied once more for parole. His description of his crimes did not match what he told investigators and interviewers prior. This could be attributed to the stroke. Nonetheless, Edmund Emil Kemper III is still in the California medical facility where he has secluded himself from interaction with the outside world. He is eligible for parole once again in 2024. Well, that concludes the story of Edmund Kemper, the co-ed killer. This was a rough one, I know. It brought me no happiness to piss off my co-host so much. I'm hoping I can find forgiveness and get Erica back again. Actually, if you guys have any ideas, let me know on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Worldwide Crime Podcast. I clearly need the help. Also, don't forget to leave us a rating on whatever platform you choose to listen to us on. Erica, is there anything you want to say to the people? I hope everyone stays safe. If you want to trash this podcast with a shit rating, I wouldn't blame you. But since it's the only thing I was created for, leave at least a decent rating. Eric will see you in the next episode. I'm not sure if I will. Okay, well, there you go. I'll post some more Kemper interview audio on Facebook too. Till then, we'll see you on the next one.